Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reform, spiritual literature, reading, especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Bookcast, a podcast hosted by Reformers Bookshop. My name is Tom Eglinton, the, the manager here at Reformers, and today we have a, a special guest calling in, the author of a new book, uh, What Happens When We Worship, Jonathan Cruz. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Well, it's so good to be here. Thanks, Tom. Uh, now, you are calling in from Michigan. Um, That's right. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do there? So I'm the minister of Community Presbyterian Church, which is a uh, church in a Reformed denomination we have here in the, the States, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Okay. And I've uh, been here for, I just entered my fifth year of ministry. That's great. Uh, so what did you do before you went into ministry then? Studied for ministry. <laughs> Good. So you went straight, straight out of school. Straight, straight seminary. from seminary. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, God really provided in that actually the call for um, the church came uh, as I was taking my finals for my penultimate semester. So I think it was like Christmas break, right? Right around Christmas break, there's this church in Michigan that uh, extended a call. So uh, my wife and I, we, we knew where we would be going um, after we graduated, which is a real blessing because a, a lot of people, you know, don't have that. And it's yeah. kind of a big question mark when you graduate. Now what? So yeah. uh, the Lord was really good to us in that. Did, did you grow up in that part of Michigan? Uh, no, I'm actually from Pennsylvania. So okay. uh, I met my wife there and uh, went to school in Philadelphia, a big city there. And we met at a, at a, a predominant uh, Presbyterian Reformed Church, 10th Presbyterian Church. So some of your listeners will know James Boyce and Phil oh, Riken, yes. yep. Paul Tripp, we're all ministers there. And so um, uh, she she grew up there. She grew up uh, under the preaching of those guys. Wow. And uh, I, I just went there for college. But a good time because I, I got to meet her. We got married there and then went straight to seminary where I studied in, in California, Westminster Seminary, California, mm-hmm. under men like Bob Godfrey and John Fesco and uh, and then now to Michigan. So we've been kind of um, pinging around the, the country. <laughs> yep. Uh, now, you your book, What Happens When We Worship, has just come out. Um, and I wanted to start by by thanking you. Uh, as As I read it, it was... It really did lift lift up my heart. It was an encouraging read, um, but what I really appreciated was all the headings, the <laughs> lots of headings through it, which makes it a very um, digestible book. So thank you for Good. writing <laughs> in the way that I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can take it. You can take it in little chunks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite helpful. Um, but the the word worship is thrown around a lot lately. Um, I I think it's it's something we often talk about. You know, all of life worship. Um, Things like that. So, uh, I mean, J.A. J. Smith has written a lot on cultural worship. Mm-hmm. and um, So there's, there's that word that goes around. Can you help us out uh, by defining worship? What is worship? Yeah, well, um, there's a couple ways in which we could define it. Um, uh, the broad definition would be worship is, is the giving of our heart um, to, to something or someone. Um, right. so it's, it's the act of, of adoration of love and affection. And so, um, everybody worships. Um, you don't have to be a Christian to worship. You don't have to be religious to worship, um, or at least recognize conscientiously that you're religious. Um, the secular society worship 
um, just as much as Christians do, but they worship different things. They worship health, safety, um, their jobs, their families, whatever it might be. So worship is just kind of that pull, that draw of the heart in, in love and affection and submission to someone or something. So that's kind of a broader definition. I call that worship with a lowercase w. Right. And then we have worship with an with a uppercase, a capital W, uh, which is what God demands of all of his creatures, right, to, to glorify him, to give him what is due his name. Uh, so that would be the draw, the pull of the heart towards the one who, who formed the heart, God himself. Uh, and so in the book, what happens when we worship, we're after that kind of that capital worship, um, right. uh, the worship that Christian, well, all creatures, but uh, oh, they're God but that Christians themselves conscientiously offer every Sunday when they come to church. Yeah, and so are you, are you, is the distinction then between the lowercase broad definition of worship and uppercase um, between individual and corporate worship, or is corporate worship a category of the, the uppercase? Um, well, I, yeah, as I, was, as I was just describing it, I was talking of, of – uh, anything we worship that that isn't God, that's the kind of that lowercase right, w. Okay. That, yep. you know. um, but yes, then there is another yet another distinction. So we can <laughs> we have all these headings again, right? And that then we talk about right worship, true worship. Um, that is found both private privately yep. and corporately. It's found on a daily basis and even an every moment basis. But then it's also found specifically on a weekly basis um, in God's house with God's people and. Um, and it's, it's hinted at in the title when I say what happens when we worship, not what happens when I worship, that, that what the book is about is corporate praise, corporate worship. Um, and so you mentioned that the kind of aphorism, all of life is worship, yeah. um, which, you know, I, I might begrudgingly assent to, yes, that, <laughs> that is kind of true. Uh, what I'd rather say, though, is all of life is meant to be worshipful. Mm-hmm. We're to do all things to the glory of God, whether we eat or drink, right? Um, but not all of life is that capital W corporate worship, the worship that scripture dictates for us and indicates for us, um, and uh, that that the church is is gathered to give God. Uh, so let me play the devil's advocate for a bit. Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, Jesus came to die but for my sins, um, my job, you know, is my, the call on my life is to repent and believe um, and become a follower of, of Christ. Surely my individual worship is what matters. Well, why, why, is, why is there an importance on corporate worship? Is corporate worship more important than individual worship? Um, you know, how, how, why, why are you choosing to write a book on corporate worship in particular? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to put it bluntly, yes, I do think corporate worship is more important than private worship. Um, and there's a number of, uh, reasons I could give, um, and, and I do give in the book, but let me just kind of highlight a few here for us. Um, one is that that's, um, that's the trajectory trajectory, excuse me, the trajectory we are on, um, as humans, as redeemed humanity, we are headed for. Not, uh, not a prayer closet, but a corporate uh, sanctuary, a worship house, the new heavens and the new earth. We're to pray that, that, that all things would be done on earth as they are in heaven. And when you turn to places like Revelation 5, 6, Revelation 19, and you get a picture of what's going on in heaven, 
it's corporate praise. It's multitudes, myriads upon myriads praising the lamb, right? It's so loud noise. <laughs> it, it's, yes, yes. Uh, it's raucous. Um, and so it, it's, so if that's what we're headed for, we should be preparing for it now. Um, so again, that's not to discredit private worship. In fact, we'll find places in scripture that, that, that dignify private worship or family worship even. Um, but that's not the telos. That's not where we're headed for. That's not the, the culmination of all humanity. Um, and another reason I, w- I would say that, that um, corporate worship is to be prefer- preferred over private is that it's corporate worship that houses what we call, in, in, what we would refer to in reform circles as the ordinary means of grace, um, the preaching of God's word and the sacraments, um, and the prayers of the church, all these things that take place in the, in the communion of the saints. Um, you can read the word. You can certainly pray privately. Um, but you can't, you can't hear the preaching of God's word, not in, not in a, um, um, well, we're going to probably get into this later. You can do that virtually <laughs> all week. You can put on podcasts and stuff. But you can't be, let me put it this way, you can't sit under the preaching of the word unless you're truly sitting there under the preaching of the word. And you can't partake of the sacraments um, if you're not in church. So corporate worship houses these things that we call the ordinary means of grace, and they're what fuel and give life to our private worship. Mm. So if corporate worship isn't there, if it dies out, then there's no private worship to even speak of. Uh, it's what, it's what I do on Sunday that informs my Monday through Saturday. Yep. So that's, that's very helpful. Uh, one of the things drawing on your first point that you highlight in the book is that, uh, when we go to corporate worship on a Sunday, we are worshiping in the heavenly places. Mm-hmm. Now that, that was a striking idea to me. Can can you explain what, what you were getting at there? Yeah, um, it is meant to be striking. Um, I've heard it said that, you know, a pastor friend of mine said once, if, if you could kind of blow off the roof of the, the church building and see where you really are uh, in the heavenly places, you'd never doze off in church. Um, but, but that idea, um, that's a, it's a fully scriptural idea, and it comes from uh, Hebrews 12, right, which uh, tells us uh, that uh, we have... Uh, not come to, uh, as they did in the old covenant, to fiery Mount Sinai um, and, and all the sacrifices that had to be made and, and sins that had to be propitiated in order to meet with God. But instead, instead it says in Hebrews twelve twenty two, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and to the heavenly Jerusalem. And it says there are countless angels and festal gathering and the assembly of all who have already gone on before us, who have died before us and are in the heavenly places. That's where we are when we, when we worship. And so um, that's totally a work of the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a, a unity or a union that takes place through the ministry of the Holy spirit that, that causes uh, us to be brought into the same space as um, as the saints who have before us and are, are truly before uh, the living God. And so that is why it's, there's, a, there's a staple in, in Reformed liturgies to say, lift up your hearts. Mm. Uh, we lift them up to the Lord. Literally, we are being lifted uh, into the Lord's presence. You know, I was, I was singing a, a hymn on, on Sunday that um, had Good. something of this, <laughs> that had something of this in it. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, um, but... It talks about calling the angels to come and worship God. 
and calling the, the saints of, of days past to come and worship God. And I thought, as I was singing it, this is fascinating that I'm singing these, you know, calling these spiritual beings and these dead saints to come and yeah. worship God with us right here, you know, in Smithfield Baptist Church. And, <laughs> right. and that, I think, is getting at that idea that you're talking about. Well, yeah. Again, this is that kind of like sense of awe that you're that you're having. Uh, it's it's the point of the book. It's to to I wrote the book so that people would recognize that something is happening when they worship. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not um, just you know a chore that you add to to your list throughout the week, like you got to go to the groceries, or get the groceries, or drop the kids off, or or head to the office, whatever it may be. Something supernatural is taking place, like you've just described. And so if we could wrap our minds around that if we could make worship not so much a perfunctory thing but but um something that's a, that's that that um we recognize as supernatural and therefore fills us with praise um not only will god be more glorified but we'll be benefited by it and um and, and you know there's another staple in, in reformed liturgies that comes from the book of common prayer before the lord's supper uh, they'd have the the sanctus, the holy, 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 and the way they would get there is there'd be a prayer um, where the minister would say, "It is right, good, and joyful thing that we should at all times and all places um, evermore praise your name." And then it says, um, uh, "And so we join our voices with the angels and the archangels, evermore singing, holy, holy, holy." And then they do the sanctus, the thrice holy. And, and so that line there, I I love you know. Um, to kind of pull out some of these gems from church history. And that's, that's a rich gem that reminds us in saying that, that when we sing, uh, we're joining a chorus of, of angels. It's, it's just wonderful. And, and it's, it's almost arrogant in, its, <laughs> in the, the boldness <laughs> with like which we can, you know, call on these spiritual beings who are right. just far, far more strong than us. And, and we can say, come on, worship God with us. And, right. and they, and yeah. they, and well, they joyfully is, do, that's right? exactly it. That's right. And the boldness is, that's the whole point. Uh, again, a passage in Hebrews. The reason, the reason we're in heaven spiritually is because Christ is there physically. Mm. And so Hebrews 4 talks about we have this high priest who, who has uh, ascended and has entered the, the Holy of Holies. And it says then, therefore, since, since our holy priest is there, uh, we should with boldness and confidence mm. draw near to the throne of grace. And so the idea is that since Christ is there, since he's made that, that new and living way uh, possible, let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near, uh, and we'll find grace and mercy in time of need, Hebrews 4, um, 13 and 14 tells us. And so, yeah, you're right. It sounds arrogant, <laughs> uh, but that kind of boldness and confidence is exactly the, 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 the feeling that Christians are meant to have because we are in Christ. He's in the heavenly places. We're there with him. Uh, it's it's a wonderful thing, and, and it should give us a sense of of, of duty, a, a sense of uh, indestructibility when we go out to to church every Sunday. And changing gears just a touch, uh, there was another statement in in the early parts of your book um, that struck me. And it, there was a lot actually. It has it's a great great book. Um, it has lots of gems in it. Uh, but one one of them was that you you claim that corporate worship is the only thing that God seeks from us. Mm. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> uh, it is. Let me clarify. 
Okay. In scripture, <laughs> uh, in scripture, and this is an insight uh, that that I gleaned from. Um, I have to look at the bookshelf behind me. So uh, I'll find it. I've got it right here. From uh, Rayburn, Robert Rayburn. Robert Rayburn. Yeah. Robert Rayburn. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he makes the point in, in John four and that discourse, that discourse with Jesus and the um, uh, the woman at the well, uh, when he says that. God is seeking worshipers, that that's the only time where it's explicitly mentioned in scripture that God is seeking something from us and he's seeking our worship. Mm. Um, so, you know, your question, is that true? That's the only thing God wants from us, that God's seeking from us? Well, no, but I do think it's remarkable that it's the only thing that, that God through the, you know, the inspired pen of scripture made sure to put down in our Bibles that we knew he was seeking. Mm. It's an incredible thing. And that's, that's what he wants. He wants people to come and worship him. Right. And, and, and is, what, is, what is the story of redemption if it's not God seeking that uh, which has been lost and reclaiming it and, and uh, recovering it and restoring it? It's the, the, the point of salvation is that uh, we who have followed the way of, of Satan um, have turned our hearts against God. The whole point of salvation is that we would give our hearts back over to him, that we would worship. And that's a great segue really into uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is that you, you make the argument in your book that corporate worship is a covenant conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you flesh that out? What's, what's the importance of covenant in corporate worship? Uh, from a biblical perspective and even like an, uh, from the ancient Near East, we know that covenants were um, relationships that were, were um, unbreakable or at least meant to be unbreakable. Um, they had stipulations, uh, and usually it was, it was between at least two parties, sometimes more, but generally a mighty king would, would enter into a covenant with, with a weaker party, um, a lesser king. The words would be suzerain, that's the mighty king, and a vassal party, you know, the weaker tribe. And he would promise them, he would protect them, he would save them, but there would be stipulations. They would need to obey him. They would need to pay taxes. Um, and then if... If they didn't, there would be repercussions. Um, and this is a helpful term or concept that God appropriates to say, this is how I relate with my people. He's the one who uses that term covenant that already existed in the ancient world so that Israel would know how they related with God. He was the mighty king, and they were the vassal people who owed them their allegiance. And so it's helpful to recognize that when, when, when we as uh, creatures come into a relationship with God, we do so in the, ter- in the, in the form of a covenant. He's our king, and we are his servants. And um, uh, from, from Genesis 3, we broke that relationship. Mm-hmm. We turned the other way. We, we, we made a, um, a, a treaty with, with the rival king, uh, with, with, with Satan, and God has won us back through the redemption uh, of his son, Jesus Christ. And now when we enter into a conversation with God, he's continually renewing or reminding us that we're still in that covenant with him. And so I think it's helpful to see um, worship as this covenantal conversation where God reminds us who he is. Uh, he's the king. We confess what we, what we haven't done. We have not lived up in that, that role of servants. And then he comes back to us with his grace and says, it's okay. I've brought you back. I will keep you. Um, when you look at the Old Testament, uh, there are always these covenantal renewal ceremonies. Israel messes up, so they make sacrifice. Uh, they, there's atonement made, and then they feast with God. They're on good terms again. Exodus 24 is a great place 
for people to turn to kind of get a, just a snapshot of that. Um, they've, they've broken covenant and yet they, God brings them uh, to his holy hill and they feast with God. Um, that's, that's like a little picture of what we get every week when we worship. Uh, we violated God's commands, and yet we don't have to fear because he's bringing us by his grace. And so that covenant idea reminds us that although we don't keep up uh, our end of the deal, God can never, can never fail to keep up his end of the deal. Mm. And so we're reminded that every, every week in worship. So to, to forsake worship is to forsake that, 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 that remedy that the soul needs, that reminder that the soul needs, that although we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And it's, it's fascinating when, as you talk through that, that um, I think an, a common reason people might skip church is that they feel like they've been a failure this week. Exactly. Um, and exactly. so uh, really what, what we're told is, no, God actually calls you, come, I want to renew covenant with you. I know you've failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've probably failed worse than mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and exactly. I, want, yeah. I want to assure you of my promises. I want to assure you of my gospel. Um, as, as you come, yeah, as, I like as to think family. of the, I like to think of the, the call to worship, that first word spoken at the start of a service, it, it's a command, mm. you, know, you have to, you have to worship me, but it's also an invitation and they're both equally true. It is equally a command as much as it is an invitation. Uh, you have to do this, but don't worry, come and do it. It's, it's what's That's good right. for you. And I want you to do it. Even though I know you're, you know, you were imperfect even this morning as you got ready for church and you sinned on the way here, uh, it's time to come and it's yeah. time to hear of my grace. And so it's a conversation we have with God and every word of his is a word of grace. Uh, yeah, it would be, um, it's truly a tragic thing to, to remove ourselves from that. That's, that's great. Now, the, the structure of your book is that there's three parts. The first part deals with the theology of worship, which is things that we've, we've just been talking about now. Uh, mm-hmm. The second part, which we'll, we'll move into, is the order of worship or the particular elements of worship. And I just wanted to mention at this point that, that you're dealing with reformed liturgies or reformed orders of service. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you draw on, on this book here, Reformation Worship, a little bit. I know, I know you've read it. You quoted it. <laughs> but um, yes. <laughs> uh, but this, this has... If uh, for listeners, if if they're thinking, oh, what is a what is a reformed liturgy, or can I see examples of that? That that's a got all of the examples. <laughs> it's got all of them in there. Yeah, but um, excellent resource. Yeah, but but uh, just to save us reading through all of those, can you tell us what a reformed liturgy is? What what's a reformed order of service? Um, well, kind of, yeah, it goes off of that that last point we were just discussing, um, the dialogue aspect of worship. Uh, or the dialogical principle um, is a key aspect of reformed liturgy where, where it's evident when you look at it um, or when you, when you participate in it, that God speaks at times and then we speak in response. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a hallmark of reformed liturgy. They, they, they really recognize that as, as an important aspect of worship. Um, um, whereas some, non-reformed liturgies would maybe have a greater emphasis on our part, um, what what we offer up to God. Uh, Reformed liturgies will, will have the opposite emphasis, both, both, both um, 
um, parties will be involved, but the greater emphasis will be hearing from God. That's what we need more than what he, what we could possibly offer up to him uh, for him to hear from us. Uh, and so, so reformed liturgy is that, that, that focus on God speaks, we speak, God speaks, we speak, but the one who, who takes up most of, of the service is God himself. That's just one way to, to kind of get at it. Um, the regulative principle of worship, there's, we talked about the dialogical principle. There's also the regulative principle. Um, hopefully this doesn't bore people, you know, we're talking about these <laughs> principles, but um, that's another hallmark of reformed liturgy and worship, which says that those things that are, are in the worship service are, are those things which are um, expressly commanded in the scriptures that we're not doing uh, those things with which the scriptures forbid. Certainly we're not including that in our worship, but even if the scriptures are neutral on the subject and don't say anything, we still don't include it in our worship. We want to worship according to the word. Yeah. Um, and so that, that conviction is also, um, you're going to find that in reformed liturgics where you wouldn't so much in, in perhaps mainstream evangelical liturgics. And again, they probably wouldn't even use that word liturgy, but um, when you're comparing them, those would be some things that would stand out as differences. Yeah. And, and your point in, in your book is that everybody has a liturgy. Some people, mm-hmm. some people think about it. That's the difference, right? <laughs> yeah, that was my, my snarky little comment, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, let, I want to deal with two aspects of worship, um, I, and I think it, it relates to what you were saying. Um, one of the ways I've seen uh, churches sort of draw back from the, the dialogical principle and having God speak more than us is by ramping up songs and reducing mm-hmm. preaching. And mm-hmm. so they're the two elements that we're mm-hmm. going to talk about. <laughs> good. So, good. Yeah. Um, so singing is it's us. A good ob- I think it's a good observation that you have too. It's a, it's right on. Yeah. So singing is us, us praising God, us talking to God. What what's the role of singing? Well, maybe what you want you wrote. <laughs> you weren't quite <laughs> sure there. Do you want to <laughs> do you want to adjust my definition? <laughs> yeah. I, I I kind of looked in the corner. Yeah, looked up the. Um, for those who are listening, I just kind of gave a little inquisitical look at that when that comment that singing is uh, praising God. It's it's true, but it's not always true. Okay. Um, and and so in the book, I I say that there's three different roles of singing, and praise is one of them. But then there's also proclamation, uh, and that is where we actually talk to to others. Yep. Uh, and that, where that's we drawing on Colossians, sing to each Colossians other. Colossians three. Yep. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, teaching and admonishing one another by singing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. So, so Paul recognizes that one of the ways that we can teach and instruct one another is through our singing. And so, um, and this gets again to one of the ways that uh, hopefully I'm not getting ahead of myself here, but where we see the kind of um, uh, the inverse in, in mainstream evangelicalism, where it's it's primarily men speaking and not God speaking. One of the ways that reformed liturgies throughout throughout the centuries has has kept that balance where it should be is singing God's words back to him and to one another. Yeah. So even in our singing, it's rooted in scripture and it's God's word. Um, and so in mainstream worship, uh, it's it's a lot about feelings. Um, sometimes they're even non-scriptural concepts that are used. Mm. And so really it's just man through and through. But in reform worship, even our singing, which is a, an emotive thing, it is about our feelings. But if when it's rooted in, in gospel truth, when it's rooted in the words of scripture, when we're actually singing portions of the Psalms, 
we can still say we're hearing God. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we praise God in our singing. Uh, God's word is proclaimed uh, through singing. And then the third thing I note in the book is, is we pray in singing. Hmm. Um, we can make supplications. We can make direct petitions to God. And, and the Psalms are a perfect place to, to see how that's true, where Israel's songbook, their hymnal, 150, 150 of their hymns, uh, the majority of them are songs of petition to God, um, calling out in time distress. Um, and so it's important for us to recognize those three functions of singing so that we don't just make church uh, a clappy concert, um, that things are all praise, that it's all upbeat, it's all in the major chord. Um, singing should have different, it does have different roles, and we should recognize that depending where we're at in, in the stages of our liturgy. Have we just heard God's law? Maybe it's time to sing a, a, a psalm of lament, right? Um, or are, are we leading into the corporate prayer of, uh, a corporate prayer of uh, the church? Uh, you know, we use a hymn there as a, a, as a way of addressing God and coming to him in prayer. Um, have we just heard the assurance of pardon? There, there's a wonderful moment for yeah, yeah. A, a doxology, a hymn of praise. So all kinds of different ways in which we can use singing. I, I like your emphasis there on, on the words that we're singing. Uh, and also the the fact that we're singing to each other, um, seeing as we're, we're talking about the differences between, say, a Reformed worship service and a broad, broader evangelical worship service, I think one of the things that, that I struggle with is the, the loudness of music in, in some evangelical churches um, mm-hmm. because you can't hear each other sing. Um, mm-hmm. you, you can only mm-hmm. hear whoever's up on, you know, worship leading. Which is my <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you for putting it in scare quotes. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. yeah, people so who are listening couldn't couldn't say that, but <laughs> maybe uh, well, we should address that anyway. Is yeah, sing, singing be- has become the the thing that people call worship. That's yes. that's the worship time, and then we have other things that go on. Uh, how do you think that's come about? Um, how do I think it's come about? Um, the seeker sensitive movement, I think, is a big part of it. Um. So what's going to get people into church? Uh, well, what, what else are they doing throughout the week? They go to movies, they go to concerts. Mm. Let's make church look, look more like that. Um, uh, so, so that's one reason I think that that's become a, a huge element in, in church. It's kind of a, even in churches that aren't necessarily seeker sensitive, it's kind of a holdover from that tradition. Mm. Um, and so we're, we're kind of emphasizing, again, like I said before, our part and our emotions, uh, sometimes to the point where we are eclipsing hearing from God. Um, and uh, the, the other thing I would say is that because singing is so um, undeniably emotional, um, and I don't mean that in a negative way, it just, it just is, um, and music is undeniably emotional, we think that worship is something that... Uh, we, we connect this, this idea of worship then with emotion. Mm. So we call that the worship time because that's the emotional time. Um, there, are two, there are two ways in which we could correct that. One is by, well, reading my book and recognizing that <laughs> there are many more aspects to worship than just, uh, than just singing and just music. Uh, things that God commands from us before him than, than just offering up uh, the, the praise of our lips, right? Um, but the other corrective would be to say that there should be emotion to the preaching. Mm. There sh- you should have an emotional response when you hear the call to worship. You should have an emotional response when you hear the benediction. 
Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of the, the onus is in on the, um, the, the leaders in the church, pastors, teachers, elders, um, worship leaders, and that is anybody who is up front leading a congregation to, to let them know what's really happening right now when we hear the call to worship. Uh, if you don't recognize that the God of the universe has spoken to you directly and he says, come and spend an hour with me, uh, if, that's, if you don't recognize that's what's going on, of course you won't have an emotional response. But once you teach about it, then you recognize. Or the benediction, when the minister lifts up his hands and says, uh, the Lord of the universe uh, who you have sinned against is going to now bless you and say only good things can come to you ultimately because of Jesus Christ, even, even though you sin through and through. If you don't know that's happening, of course you won't have an emotional response. And so if we kind of understood more of the elements of worship, then I think we would, we would um, better be able to distinguish uh, why, or we would have a better understanding of why certain people think worship is only music as opposed to the whole services, because we don't recognize that all of our emotions, all of our affections should be from the call to worship to the benediction. I don't know if that's, that's helpful or not, but no, that's, that, that's very of, helpful. And, and I agree. Yeah. I think one of the thing, one of the, the people who I think would benefit greatly from your book uh, are those who, who do um, lead from the front through that worship service, because even in the way that you say things, um, it, that does bring out a lot of those ideas that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, now, moving then on to another striking thing that that you uh, wrote in your book. That um, actually, let me let me get it exactly right. One of the chapter topic chapter headings is called "Jesus Gets Up to Preach," and I think this is a this is a common idea in Reformed um, theology. Oh but has again become degraded in the, the broader evangelical view that there's a primacy of preaching. Um, preaching is, is the, the highlight of the service. Now, and, and sorry, I, I think you see that that's degraded a little bit when, when things get renamed from preaching to Bible talk. Um, Mm-hmm. And and it becomes this casual event rather than a declaration or or a Jesus turning up to preach. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you the, the the question again: Does Jesus really turn up to preach on a Sunday morning? Yes. <laughs> Explain that out for us. Uh, yeah, so the, it's a provocative statement, but it's one that's called from the the witness of uh, the scriptures. Uh, there's a couple of places I point to Ephesians 2, 17, Paul's writing to the Ephesians and he said, Christ came and he preached peace to you who were near and you who were far off. Well, it doesn't take a, uh, you know, a seminary graduate or Bible scholar to recognize that Jesus was never in Ephesus. Mm. So how can Paul say that he came and preached peace? Well, apostles came and preached and, and Paul uh, uh, equates the work of the the words, excuse me, the words and the work of the ambassador to the, to the words and the work of the one who sends, the king who sends the ambassador. Uh, this, this mystical uh, union that there is in this representative. Um, and then Romans 10, again, Paul writes about the importance of preaching that famous um, passage where he says, you know, how will they believe unless they hear and how will they hear unless there are those who are sent to them. And uh, he says there in Romans 10, 14, how should they believe in him? him uh, whom they have not heard whom not of whom they've they've not heard they, they haven't heard about him he says whom they have not heard how will they believe unless they've heard his voice 
right? And so, so Paul is teaching us that. And then right after they said, so we've got to go send. We have to send missionaries. We have to send preachers. And somehow, somehow, when those missionaries are sent, when preachers go and preach, they hear not about him. They hear him. They hear Jesus. And so uh, it's, it's part of the reason that Paul can call preaching foolishness, right? Because you know when you go to church, you don't see Jesus. You see Pastor Smith, Pastor Jones, Pastor Cruz, or whatever. And they're just Joe Schmo. I mean, they're just an average guy, or at least they should be. That's part of the issue is that we've elevated, you know, preachers and pastors in, in certain circles. But um, for the for the 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 sincere, honest churchgoer who has a good relationship with their pastor, they know this guy puts on his pants like the rest of us, one leg at a time, <laughs> right? Uh, and so that's why preaching can seem to be a foolish means to save people, because I know this guy. And I know he's no savior. And I know he even has issues with his kids and he's got this or this and that indeed, but it's through weakness that the power of God is best perceived. It's a mystery. Uh, we can't explain it, but we're to, we're to believe it. And we're to, we're to rejoice in that, that through a, 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 an average man who's ordained to the ministry and preaches, I get to hear my savior. I rejoice in that. That's an incredible thing. Um, now, just to, to uh, sort of bring this to a practical uh, ending, I thought two areas. Uh, first, very, very briefly, um, because you're dealing in your book with reformed liturgies, what would your, your advice be to someone who reads your book and goes, ah, this, this thing that we're going through, this corporate worship is a magnificent thing, it's, it's awe-inspiring, um, but my church doesn't have the same sort of liturgy as you're talking about in the book. There are elements mm-hmm. missing or they haven't thought about it or it's all over the place. What would your advice mm-hmm. be to someone in that, in that sort of position? That's a really tough question. It is an important question, but it's a difficult one. Um, particularly because I'm never an advocate as pastor. I'm never an advocate of, of having people leave churches over um, or uh, making that a small matter. Oh, you're upset about something or you don't like something leave. I think that should always be a last resort. But uh, on the other hand, as I make a case from the book, I think worship is the most important thing that you could ever do in life. So it's hard for me to think of a reason, um, a more pressing reason to evaluate your church and say, maybe this isn't right for me than an issue pertaining to worship. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, so perhaps that is, that is the answer that they say, uh, you know, I love this church, but, but now I've come to recognition that we don't read the law and we don't confess our sins. And, um, you know, maybe the, the preaching isn't, isn't, what it should be. Um, it could be that, that you, that it might be time to say this church isn't, isn't best for me now. And, and, um, look for a church that, that has these biblical elements or takes, um, their worship more thoughtfully and seriously. Um, but I say that, that I say that cautiously. Um, it could be be a lot of discussion that might go on before that. I would hope so. Well, that's what the next thing I was going to say is that, you know, um, talk to the leaders in your church from a respectful position, ask them. It could be very well that it's not that they're ignorant of these things. They know about these things and they have reasons for why they, they don't want to. And you could have a, have a really productive conversation, um, constructive conversation about worship and kind of just better understanding. Um, but, but in whatever setting you're in, um, it's important to think, what is happening right now? You know, maybe my church doesn't do the order I would like, or they don't have everything that I would like to see in there. 
but just to be thoughtful mm. and, and recognize, okay, but at least I know it right now, this is what we're doing. And this is why we're doing that. Cause that's kind of the call of the book is that people just be more thoughtful in worship uh, and wouldn't just let be, let the kind of um, let worship become rote or routine. Right. Uh, so um, at the very least in whatever setting we're in, we can at least make our worship more uh, meaningful to us and more glorifying to God by, by active, actively engaging in it. That, that's very helpful. Thank you. And then lastly, to end on a uh, controversial note. <laughs> oh, good. I love ending on those notes. Oh, yeah. That's where we should end. Um, we've been going through COVID lately. Uh, I was talking to you earlier. You've, you've had the same, same sort of issues as everyone around the, the globe has. And so virtual church has become a thing. Um, mm-hmm. what, do you, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on uh, ringing in you know, Zoom, Zoom worship services or live streamed worship services. Yeah. Uh, how providential that this book came out when it did, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Almost everybody asks or talked to you about it, asks a question like this. And I said, if, you know, if I only we'd pushed, pushed it back a few more months, maybe I could have had a chapter about this. Yeah. Um, one thing is that it's interesting that virtual church existed before COVID. Cause I even, I wrote a paper years ago, like seven years ago in seminary on um, um, virtual church attendance. And the difference though is now that pretty much every church or at least every church tradition will offer this. It's not, it's no longer uh, um, this kind of um, uh, avant-garde thing. It's, it's now become mainstream. And so we do need to be really thoughtful about it. Um, a couple things, I guess I would say in order to help people to that end uh, one, it can be a blessing, um, and I think it, it, it is a blessing. I know that uh, in my own context, people have been blessed by it who have not been able to come to church. Um, and I'm even thinking of non-COVID-related reasons. Um, just the other week, we had somebody who's, um, for other medical issues, a, a serious medical issue, um, is unable to come to church, and they can, they can um, join in so to speak um at home we never had that before and i know a lot of churches have live streamed in the past and stuff but there's there's some benefit there but what i would want everybody to to be cautious of and careful of is is to recognize that they're not um when when they watch church online that is what they're doing they're watching it they're not in it uh you're watching worship take place uh, you're watching corporate worship take place, but you are not worshiping corporately. I like to say that that um, if you're if you're tuning into live stream, it's something that can aid private worship, family worship, but it's it cannot substitute corporate worship. Um, you you you're not sitting under the uh, the um, authority of a preacher when you have the ability to hit mute or go to Facebook instead, right? Uh, you can't receive virtual communion and we, the list can go on of things that just can't take place. And so I've had, I, I've heard so many people say, yes, of course it can never replace worship. Uh, and I agree with that, but then they kind of want to say, but it's, it's kind of a, a good, you know, until COVID passed, it's the best we can do. Um, I think worship is, is more important. Corporate worship is more important than, than any pandemic in the world has known many pandemics. Yes. There might be times where we need to, for a period um, step back from certain things, uh, but we never want to get caught in this, um, this, this mindset that says, yeah, it's not great, but it's, it's still, it's, it passes. It's okay. 
Um, no, <laughs> it, it does not pass for corporate worship because literally it's not corporate. I mean, that comes from the idea of corporeal, you know, corpus body. Corporate worship means in-person worship. So there are blessings to it, but there, there are major limitations. And I just want people to be aware of those. Very helpful thoughts. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you very much for joining us on our podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and for uh, waking up so early so that you could, you could work with my East Coast uh, time zone. Not a problem at all. And uh, you've been listening to Jonathan Cruz, the author of What Happens When We Worship, uh, a great book that will lift up your heart and uh, encourage you with the enormity and the magnificence of what we do each week. And you've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your bookcasts, well, podcasts, I should say. And we'll see you next time.